welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dad podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another Wednesday episode. (sighs) Thank God we made it. (laughs) I am so sorry for the delay. So, so, so sorry. I was having a shit storm of a time last night trying to get this stupid fucking audio software to work and I apologize so greatly. I feel so bad. I was really panicking about it, but I think we're up and running. I ran a couple of updates. I'm hoping that that helped a lot. I really don't know though, but we're gonna try. We are going to try because I want y'all to have this episode. I have researched it for a little bit. There's so much information It's probably going to be a part two kind of situation because there's so much information and a lot happens in the case and after the case. So just a heads up. And also a second thing, I am so, so, so sorry that I just kind of went kind of silent over the weekend and did not post an episode on Sunday. I'm so sorry. I was going to post an announcement on Friday evening, but I just was very overwhelmed and very stressed and did not have enough time to do that. We had the Kansas City Chiefs game this past weekend with our friends Chas and Toph, and we tailgated and all sorts of stuff, so we had just, like, a fuck ton of shit to do in the leading days up, like, just getting stuff ready, all the stuff, and I think we also, yeah, we had dinner with Creighton's mom I had just a lot of things to do, and so we we had to pack, too. Can't forget that. And then we went to the game. I was planning on maybe posting a announcement on my social media, at least, but I didn't even get around to that because, quite frankly, we were partying or eating or sleeping or going to the game and tailgating. Like, literally, we were just having fun, and I was trying to be there in the moment with my friends and really enjoy the weekend. So, I'm really sorry. I was going to give you a warning, but I failed to. But, yeah, let me tell you about the Chiefs, like, weekend. It was super-duper fun. We stayed in this Airbnb That was so cute. I loved it. Great and picked it out. It was adorable. I will say, though, a little creepy, not going to lie. Like... And y'all can tell me if I'm crazy for this. I don't know. But like, so you walk in and apparently they lived in the house next to us to the right. Okay. So like if you're just in the house, it's to your right. Well, I guess if you're like facing the front door, it's to your right. And then if you're facing like the kitchen, for instance, it's to your left. Okay. So it's just, it's right next door. And we were like the corner house. So like all of the windows on the one side that were not facing that house had blinds, the blinds were closed, all of the things. But then all of the windows that faced the house did not have blinds, did not have like any sort of curtain, anything. They were just open. And I don't know about y'all, but I completely felt like I was being watched all weekend just because like, why the fuck are those the only windows that don't have shades? ones that are facing your house. I don't know. Y'all can tell me if I'm crazy, but that's just how I felt. It was fine though. I still had fun. Uh, And we went to that game. The game was really fun. Really, really fun. I've never tailgated before, so that was a really fun experience as well. We had like so many extra burgers and we were like handing them out to people before we walked into the game because we kind of tailgated a little too late because we didn't want to tailgate for too long, but 
we ended up handing out quite a bit of food to just random Chiefs fans as they were walking in, and it was really cool. Really, really fun. Had a really great time, and then it was sad to come back to reality, aka work, but I think it was it was good. That's good. Also, I I just have quite a few little announcements for you. So I wanted to talk to you guys about possibly adding in a segment for each episode and it would be mainly Creighton's segment. And we haven't really decided what he would be talking about with me, but it would be kind of just like me and him bantering back and forth about something that he would be presenting to me and I'd sort of be reacting to it like whether it's crazy news that's going on right now stuff like that and I think it would just be like 10 minutes at the beginning of each episode and I think I really want to include him in that and I think it would be a really fun aspect of the podcast if y'all are into that kind of thing so please let me know what you think because I think we're planning on trying that either in the next episode or probably the one after that so let me know. Uh, Also, happy November. I did not tell you this last week. I am so excited. Honestly, I'm very sad that Halloween is over already. Creighton and I were talking about it and he thinks that it came and went so fast for me, like October the whole month, because I was planning on or I was looking forward to going to the Chiefs game the first weekend of November. So I was just wanting October to be over, but I'm so sad that it's over, honestly so, so sad, but happy November, happy Thanksgiving month, sorry, turkey month, very, very excited. I am always going to be busy for the holidays, but I am really excited because I get to go have my mom's dressing, and it is the best thing ever in the entire world, and I look forward to it every single year, so mom i'm excited also broccoli rice casserole delish cannot wait mom so excited i don't really know if there's anything else i've been on a really big banana bread kick recently i had so many fucking bananas to get rid of and i made like probably i made like hmm, five mini loaves two of them were white chocolate banana bread and then three of them were regular and then i made two big ass loaves so fucking good. So, so, so good. Honestly, thought about doing that for possibly my um, Christmas presents to people this year, but probably not because they deserve more than that. But I am very excited for Christmas. I love to give gifts. It's one of my favorite things. I think it's super duper 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 fun. I think that's about it actually. Now, I think I have updated you with everything that's gone on in my life in the week that I haven't talked to you. So, I hope you really enjoy this episode. I feel like it's a little different from what we would normally cover a little bit, but not too different. And I am excited. I hope you enjoy and I love you. Let's get into it. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was born on June 22, 1930 to Charles Lindbergh, who was a famous aviator, and Anne Moreau Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh, as stated previously, was a famous aviator, but he wasn't just that. He was a military officer, an inventor, an author, and he was also an activist. So what made Charles such a famous aviator? On the days of May 20th and May 21st of 1927, Charles Lindbergh made the first non-stop transatlantic flight. 
Charles flew from New York City all the way to Paris, and this was a distance of 3,600 miles or 5,800 kilometers. So pretty fucking far. Charles not only accomplished this, but when he did this, he did it completely alone for 33 and a half hours, which is insane. His aircraft was named the Spirit of St. Louis, and it was built by Ryan Airline Company, and it was actually built for a contest. Charles Lindbergh was trying to win the Ortique Prize, which would be given to the person who could fly between two cities. Not only did Charles's flight accomplish traveling between two cities, but it was the first transatlantic flight that had been carried out solo. It was the first non-stop transatlantic flight between two major city hubs. And lastly, it was the longest flight by over 1,900 miles, which is pretty impressive to be honest. I also talked to my friend who knows about aviation stuff because in my brain, I was like, how does one even do that? Like, how do you fly for that long without stopping to refuel? How, how, how would it be nonstop? And he said, basically, that you would have to have, like, you would have to find this sort of sweet spot when you're flying, and then you would have to literally leave the wheel and go refuel. Fucking crazy. I would be freaking out completely. Because of this fame and all of Charles Lindbergh's major accomplishments, Charles and Anne decided that it would probably best to live in a more secluded area just to stay out of the eyes of the news and all about that. I mean, if you think about the time, flying was a really big deal, so he was pretty famous. The two of them found a 390-acre estate located on the outskirts of Hopewell, New Jersey, and the two of them really believed that this would do them good, especially because Charles Jr. was just about to arrive. The secluded peace, however, would not last long. In 1932, just about two years after the birth of Charles Lindbergh Jr., the Lindbergh family would be on the front page news, and this was not for something positive. On March 1st, 1932, at around 10 p.m., Betty Gao, who was 20-month-old Charles Lundberg Jr.'s nurse, notices that Charles Jr. is missing from his nursery that was on the second floor of the Lindbergh family home. Betty Gao then immediately went to inform the parents. There was a search carried out by the family, and this was of the home and the surrounding area, but there was no sign of Charles Jr. However, there was a ransom note found on the nursery windowsill. And this ransom note was demanding $50,000 from the Lindbergh family for Charles Jr. The family, after seeing this, immediately notified the authorities and the New Jersey State Police took over the investigation. Investigators did a thorough search of the Lindbergh family home and here investigators found a few things, but honestly, not much. Investigators found traces of mud on the nursery floor, footprints under the nursery window, but these were actually not able to even be measured, so they were kind of useless. There was also a ladder found, and two of the sections were used in the process of carrying out the kidnapping, and one of the sections was actually broken where the two sections joined together. I'm sorry if that's confusing. Like, imagine the ladder, right? Like, how it folds like one of those sections was broken, basically. Unfortunately, there were no fingerprints found anywhere on scene, but specifically there were none in the nursery. Something that investigators did see as a semi-positive aspect, I guess, was that there was no blood evidence found in the nursery or anywhere on scene. So that's a positive sort of. 
Initially, all of the household and estate employees were questioned, but this really brought nothing to investigators. During this point, also, Charles Lindbergh was essentially attempting to have people close to him make these negotiations with the unknown kidnappers. On March 6, 1932, Charles Lindbergh receives a second ransom note. This ransom note involved the kidnappers attempting to raise the ransom amount to 70000 instead of the initial 50000 This note was postmarked from Brooklyn, New York, and it was postmarked on March 4th, just two days before the note was received by Charles Lindbergh. After the second ransom note was received, there was a police conference called by the governor. And this conference was held in Trenton, New New Jersey, sorry. And there was a ton of prosecuting officials, police and government representatives, all of the people. There were discussions and theories about the procedures, about how the investigation was going to be carried out. And also around this time, Charles Lundberg's attorney, Colonel Henry Breckenridge, hired private investigators for the Lundberg family. On March 8th, 1932, there was a third ransom note. And this one was actually received by Henry Breckenridge, Lindbergh's attorney himself. And this note essentially stated that the Lindbergh intermediary, who is basically the person who is in between the communications of the kidnappers and the Lindbergh family, just wasn't going to work. They also wanted an ad in the newspaper for communication between the two parties. Dr. John F. Condon, who was a retired school principal, the same day that the note was received, so March 8th, he published an ad in the Bronx Home News offering himself as the intermediary. Not only this, he was also offering to pay an additional $1,000 to the ransom money total. On March 9th, 1932, the fourth ransom note was received, and this note was received by Dr. Condon himself. This note was essentially a response to the ad that Dr. Condon had put out in the paper, and the kidnappers state that they are okay with Dr. Condon basically being the mediator of this whole situation. Charles Lindbergh agrees to this and they work on getting the ransom money together. Around March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon is given $70,000 in cash for ransom money. After he received the cash, Dr. Condon immediately began negotiating the payment with the kidnappers through newspaper articles. He used the name Joffsey as like a code name in these ads, and it's J-A-F-S-I-E, so I think it's Joffsey. On March 12th, 1932, around 8.30 p.m., Dr. Condon received an anonymous call, and after this anonymous call, Joseph Perone, who was a taxi driver, received the fifth ransom note from an unidentified individual. Joseph Perone then delivered this note to Dr. Condon, and this note stated that the next ransom note would be found under a rock and this rock would be found at a vacant stand, and this stand would be 100 feet from an outlying subway station. So very, very specific, very just kind of dragging them along, I guess, if you will, but I don't know. Dr. Condon found the sixth ransom note, and this had instructions for Dr. Condon to meet this unknown man by the alias of John, and this 
meeting was to take place at the Woodland Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. Here at the cemetery, the two men discussed how they would pay the ransom money, and John also agreed to basically show the family a sign of life or that they essentially had Charles Jr. in their possession because you don't want to just give $50,000, $70,000 to just some random ass person who doesn't even actually have your kid. Dr. Condon was actually accompanied by a bodyguard for the majority of this interaction besides the actual conversation between the two men, but he was protected during this. After this, Dr. Condon kept putting these ads out to try and get into contact with the kidnappers about paying the ransom money. On March 16, 1932, Dr. Condon receives the seventh ransom note and along with this, he received a sleeping onesie for a baby. This onesie was then delivered to Charles Lindbergh, and it was identified as Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s onesie. Very sad that they did actually have him. On March 21st, 1932, Dr. Condon received a ransom note, number eight, and this note told them that complete compliance was necessary. And he also, he, I guess they, I don't know, the kidnappers also said that this kidnapping had actually been planned for an entire year. So fucking scary. On March 29th, 1932, Charles Jr.'s nurse, Betty Gow, noticed something right over by the entrance to the Lindbergh family home. Upon further investigation, Betty Gow noticed that she was seeing Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s thumb guard. And this is a thumb guard that he had been wearing the night that he was kidnapped. On March 30th, 1932, ransom note number nine was received by Dr. Condon. And this ransom note was essentially demanding more money from the Lindbergh family. And at this point, the kidnappers raise a ransom money up to $100,000. On April 1st, 1932, Dr. Condon receives the 10th ransom note, and this note instructed Dr. Condon to have the money ready for the next night. Dr. Condon then replies to this note through another newspaper ad, basically stating like, okay. On April 2nd, 1932, another unidentified taxi cab driver delivered the 11th ransom note to Dr. Condon. And this note led Dr. Condon to the 12th ransom note. And this note was located under a stone that was in front of a random ass greenhouse. So once again, taxi cab driver brings him a note that then leads him on another little chase to another note. This greenhouse was located at 3225, sorry, East Tremont Avenue in Bronx, Bronx Avenue, Bronx, New York. Sorry, jeez. The same evening, Dr. Condon met with this John alias, and this was in an attempt to reduce the ransom amount to $50,000. This $50,000 then was handed to this John, and through this exchange, the 13th note was given to Dr. Condon. And after this, the stranger just disappeared and left. The 13th ransom note included the instructions to the location of Charles Lindbergh Jr. And the kidnapper stated that Charles Lindbergh Jr. would be found on a boat named Nellie. And this boat would be found near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. There was a search of this area carried out the very next day with no luck. There was still no sign of Charles Jr. But they had taken the ransom money from the Lindbergh family. On May 12, 1932, the deceased body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. was sadly discovered. 
Charles Lindbergh was found partially buried with his body sticking out of this partial hole, I guess you would say, and he was quite far in the decomposition process. His body was found just four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home by a man named William Allen, and this was just 45 feet off of the road so fucking sad. He was so close. This road was located in Mercer County, New Jersey, and sadly, Charles Lundbergh Jr.'s skull was crushed, and there was also a hole found in his skull as well. Some of his body parts had also been dismembered, and I'm not sure if that was from the perpetrators or if that was from, like, just being out in nature. I'm, I'm really not sure. On May 13th, 1932, the body was positively identified as Charles Lindbergh Jr. and there was an examination carried out. The cause of his death was determined to be a fatal blow to the head, which is so fucking sad. And they also determined that he had been deceased for about two months. This is where I'm going to leave you guys off because there is just so much more information with this case and... I'm pretty fucking tired, honestly. Uh, I don't know if a lot of you know this, but I do also work a full-time job on top of this, so I'm working 50 hours a week, and I do need to sleep sometimes, but I thought that this would be a good case to do a part two because there seriously is just so much information after he is found, so I hope you enjoyed it so far. I cannot wait to see you for part two on Sunday. All right, I think the only thing that I have for you guys is just to go follow me on social medias. So, I have an email if you want to send me any cases, any recommendations, anything that you want to chat about, any like crazy shit that's happening in the world that you think I should know about, just shoot me an email at the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com. I also have a website, thenotsogratefuldead.podbean.com. I have an Instagram, thenotsogratefuldead underscore podcast. I have a TikTok, thenotsogratefulldeadpod. I'm working on figuring out how to get back into that because it kicked me the fuck out. So I'm trying to get back in and stay consistent with some TikToks for you guys because I don't know a lot of you. I don't know if you know that I have social media, but I do. But I feel like also telling like a short little synopsis almost of the case on TikTok while also showing you those visuals that I post on my social media would be beneficial for you as well. So I am trying to really work hard on getting my TikTok back up and running. So stay tuned for some TikTok videos. (laughs) I also have a Facebook and that is an also grateful that podcast with Grayson Decker. And that is about it for today, lovelies. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I cannot wait to see you on Sunday. All right. Bye-bye.